1: Hi, I'm Eric Rosenberg from Personal Profitability, and when I'm not busy hustling my tuchus off, I am Stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor Doug. Hey there, money fans. Miss us? Everyone's moving a little slow here after last night's Oscar party. OG totally flipped when Terminator 3 wasn't nominated again. I agree, OG. Big slight by the Academy. Joe's yelling at the television all night about the shape of water and how it should have won all 13 of its nominations. But I comforted them both by telling them that today, Mrs. Frugalwoods herself, Elizabeth Thames, is headed to the basement. Plus, is Fidelity competing with advisors? We'll have that story in our headline segment. Throw out the Haven Lifeline, answer your letters, and still leave time for my award-winning trivia. Tons of awards. Can't even count all the awards. They're everywhere. And now, two guys who both have been completely sore losers to me after losing last night's popcorn-eating contest. Everybody say it with me now. Joe and O. J-J-J-J-J-G!
2: It's not fair because Doug didn't put all the butter on there that he was supposed to, and the salt. And if you put butter and salt, you have to take a drink every so often. I think he cheated
0: Forget about the Oscars. Like, the Oscars were fine, but that popcorn contest was such baloney. It was so rigged. It was rigged. It was rigged. It totally was. So rigged. Hey, like this show's rigged. Welcome back to the Stacky Benjamin Show. We're rigged up for another eight weeks, OG. Ready to get the mics hot again. The basement is uh, nice and clean. Well, it was clean until last night's party. Thanks to the Term for being here last week, holding down the fort for us. But we are back. Good to see you again, partner.
2: It's like I never left.
0: It is always just like that. Hey, we got Liz Frugalwoods coming down to the basement. It's, it's, it's funny. Her name's Elizabeth Thames, but nobody knows her that way. We know her as Mrs. Frugalwoods. So there Mrs. Frugalwoods on our way down to the basement today. We got a fantastic show. You know what you do when you know somebody as cool as Mrs. Frugalwoods? Give her a free M1. <laughs> well, actually, they give everybody a free M1, but I don't even want to talk about that. I make sure that I'm friends with her on LinkedIn or that. you got to connect with her. <laughs> I'm going to connect both of those. Two suggestions together. <laughs> Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Stacky Benjamins. The best place to find great talent for your hiring needs is LinkedIn. Businesses rate LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates for a $50 credit toward your first job posting. Visit LinkedIn.com SB. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks, LinkedIn. I always say four fur For a. $50 credit. You notice that?
2: Well, nature and nurture. Yeah.
0: Back in the stone age before M1 Finance, investing your money on your own was intimidating, time-consuming, and expensive. You had to calculate and input every trade you wanted to make, and then you were hit with commission every time you clicked a button. Thankfully, M1's completely changed the investing game. You can now build and own a diversified investment portfolio made up of the stocks and ETFs you pick. Then it's as easy to manage as a savings account. M1 uses intelligent automation and fractional shares to invest every penny in the most efficient way. And what does it cost? We will give one to Mrs. Frugalwoods. Because it's free and nothing like we like giving people better presents than free. Oh, uh, we didn't know it was free. Except we always say, "Oh, really? It's free? That's really? cool." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, good, good for, for you. you. <laughs> Fantastic. Do yourself a favor. Check it out on the web at m1finance.com. Stackabendyments.com forward slash m1finance. Says uh, we sent you. Stackabendyments.com forward slash m1finance. M1finance. Be invested. We have a fun show today. We're so happy to be back with you. Let's get her rolling.
3: Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins Headlines.
0: Our first piece of this eight weeks comes to us from Investment News. This is written by Greg Akirchi. It says, is Fidelity competing with retirement plan advisors? As the mutual fund giant expands the breadth of products and service it brings to retirement markets, some say it's encroaching on advisors' turf. So we did a story during our last segment of shows, during the last eight weeks, OG, about how Fidelity was kind of starting to throw its weight around a little bit against Vanguard. Now it looks like it might be throwing its weight around with advisors. Listen to this. Fidelity Investments is the undisputed titan of the retirement marketplace, With 1.64 trillion with a T in defined contribution plan assets under its belt, the Boston based mutual fund company administers more than 1 trillion more in defined contribution plan assets than its closest competitor. So it is 1.64 trillion and it's a trillion ahead. That's uh, pretty big. Just a little bit of a head start. And it controls almost a quarter of the seven trillion dollar market itself. As one of the fastest growing providers, Fidelity's more than maintaining its sizable lead, but some financial advisors fear the Titan starting to infringe on their turf. Those advisors are wary of recent business maneuvers Fidelity's made, which they claim compete directly with them. Advisors say moves like providing fiduciary 401k investment advice to employers and serving as the broker through its new employee benefits exchange combined with Fidelity's massive scale, could put them in a tough spot. Quote, they're the 800-pound gorilla, so you kind of have to be close with them, but they're competing with us, says Blake uh, Tebow, managing director at Heffernan Financial Services, which oversees around $3 billion in retirement assets. You know, it's funny, OG. I want to bring this up because this is a side of the business that the average person doesn't see. And that's uh, kind of one of the I guess, high lowlights of our show is we can pull back the curtain on the advisory side of, of the marketplace. A lot of people don't understand what any of this means. Tell me what advisors are complaining about with Fidelity here.
2: Well, there's two sides of investment management, right? There's the retail side. So when you work with IRAs and Roth IRAs and brokerage accounts and that sort of thing as an advisor, and then you can also be an advisor to Retirement plan. And usually, those bigger plans, like the billion dollar plans, you know, you think of those big Fortune 500 companies, they have billions of dollars in their 401k plans. Advisors tend to not be involved in those, right? Because they've got a whole team of people, whether it's Fidelity or any of these other providers that provide the education, that sort of thing. But advisors sometimes are involved in smaller plans. You know, a small company that might have 10 or 12 employees, 50 employees, and those generally are too small for these big asset managers like Fidelity and that sort of thing. So advisors kind of scoop those up and they can charge advisory fees on them and that sort of stuff. But as technology gets better, you know, that works both ways. Advisors can work with bigger plans, but it's also scalable for the big companies to just go, well, we'll take anybody now.
0: I'm wondering is if this is just an evolution, right? Further down in the piece, it says that when the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule took effect in June 2017, Fidelity adopted a policy unique among its record-keeping peers. Essentially, Fidelity would help employers assemble a fund lineup for retirement plans with less than $50 million and would do so as a fiduciary, a core service of advisors who are fairly specialized in the retirement market. Advisors such as Chad Larson, whose Denver-based advisor firm oversees more than $3 billion in retirement assets, have felt Fidelity's competitive pressure firsthand. A year ago, one plan sponsor considering using Mr. Larson's firm as a 401k investment fiduciary backed off after hearing from Fidelity, the plan's record keeper, that it would offer its fiduciary service at no additional cost, Mr. Larson said. We appreciate it, they said, but Fidelity's going to take care of that at no charge. And, it, and it's funny, isn't it, it? And if they're the people running the plan isn't it their job to cut Mr. Larson out of the mix? You know, cut the middle yeah. man out, just go directly to Fidelity. If Fidelity is going to offer it a lower charge, why not just go through Fidelity and cut out the middle dude?
2: Yep. Well, and it's a smart play by Fidelity because a new advisor might come in and change all the fun lineup, right. And say, well, we shouldn't have Fidelity funds. We should have Vanguard funds or whatever. Right. And and now Fidelity's just lost all those assets, which is where their real money comes from. And that money doesn't come from the plan fees, $5,000 a year, that sort of stuff. They don't care about that. They care about the billion dollars at 1% in the Fidelity Contra Fund.
0: And that's exactly my next point, which is, can Fidelity really be a fiduciary? Like, Can I trust an investment house, no matter how much they put their hand on a stack of Pick your religious document, right? Right. <laughs> uh, it, no matter what they say, can you really say that Fidelity... Because that, that seems to me to be exactly the play here. Like, take away the name Fidelity and put in the name Putnam, and everybody's going to go, yeah, right, Putnam? No, I don't think... You can say you're fiduciary all day. Putnam's a great... You know, they're a fine company. I'm not ripping on Putnam. Oppenheimer, Franklin Templeton, put in American put in any of these other fun families and i think a lot of people go yeah no nah, i don't think so
2: i agree with you hundred percent it's really it's hard to pass the sniff test of how do i how do i know that you manufacture and distribute products yeah there's a piece and you're of- telling me that this is the best one this happens to be the one you manufacture and distribute I'm, i mean it might be there needs another layer of scrutiny i think
0: There's a piece of me that thinks that these firms like uh, Mr. Larson, even though he has a fee in the middle of it, might be a better path if he's, you know, and I don't know anything about Chad Larson's firm. I just know that having somebody in the middle, hopefully that can go between a bunch of different asset houses versus going directly to the asset house, it tells you they're a fiduciary. I don't know.
2: I was reviewing a uh, retirement plan for a client a couple of uh, weeks ago, pretty small plan, all things considered, but it was packed with stuff that was just terrible, right? Just huge internal costs and that sort of thing. And when we did all the math, we were able to save the client, which was the the company, about two hundred thousand a year in fees, just because somebody else looked and went, "Yeah, no, this is a little too pricey." The great news was that they took that information, used that with their current provider, and said, "Hey." this guy says we're getting hosed on this deal. What do you think? And the and, and of course the current providers like, whoa, well, wow, we were just about to propose this to you. Let's lower all these fees, uh, which was great. It yeah. worked for the client. So sure. I'm happy about it. Right. It, uh, the, yeah. the end result was everybody, everybody was better off. So it just uh, seems so, so bad. You, that... you got It's just like anything, right? Have you ever re quoted your car insurance? Sure. You yeah. You go, Holy cow. Yeah. Like, a year cheaper, like they say, (laughs) like the commercials.
0: Or, you know, I I remember one time when I called my cable company for my internet service, right? And talked to them and they're like, oh, uh, you're still on that plan? Uh, We got rid of that plan a year and a half ago. And for the current amount that you're paying, you could have $1.8. (laughs) times higher
2: yeah we weren't gonna tell you yeah i'm like really your fiduciary uh, cable company (laughs) but uh
0: you were happy ripping me off but as long as i'm on the phone why don't we stop ripping you off We were just about to send you a postcard yeah yeah. but Uh,
2: jack don't send joe that postcard we were gonna send yeah i've got him on the phone right here
0: well into this firm that you were working with on their retirement plan like why do you even trust the first firm even if they come back and match all the pricing like why do i trust them
2: Might have been my point, but (laughs) wasn't going to go there. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm like, really? So they matched them now. So are you going to just keep bringing me back every six months to make sure that they always do the right thing? That sounds like a great strategy. Our second piece comes to us from the Wall Street Journal. This is written by Jason Zweig. I'd love to have Jason Zweig on the show. We, we've said that 30 times. I think we've reached out to him exactly never. And, and we probably we probably need to do that. imagine we could. This is uh, from his uh, very famous uh, Money Beat column, The Intelligent Investor. Meet the guy who gets financial advisors appearances at Harvard and West Point. You sent this to me, OG. Ooh. Well, oh, hey,
2: if you're, if you're doing Harvard, put that on your website.
0: Clint Arthur sets up events that allow financial advisors to speak at leading universities. More than a dozen financial advisors claim to have given speeches at Harvard Business School or the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. But there's Uh-oh. a hook, OG.
2: What's this dude's uh, job? What did he do before he started being this expert uh connector
0: Uh, they were invited by clint arthur an erstwhile screenwriter former taxi driver and he was an Uh organic butter salesman and what he does is you know how they have these beautiful rooms at at uh west point that you can rent out for a wedding or for a function they Uh have those at harvard where maybe if you've got a reunion or something you can rent the, the room, Entrepreneur
2: Club at Harvard Business School, which is a outside affiliated group.
0: Okay. He he will rent out the room for you, invite you to speak, and you can say you spoke at Harvard.
2: Hot darn! That's can I put it <laughs> on my website?
0: I think you should because you were speaking at Harvard.
2: I was speaking at Harvard.
0: This is so slimy.
2: Uh, oh, it's ridiculous! It gets better. So, uh, Wall Street Journal calls Harvard and says, uh, "Can you tell us about this?" Uh, Speaking engagement? (laughs) And they're like, yeah. They adhered to the rules of renting out the space, as well as adhering to the rules about saying and using the Harvard logo. Which means they don't. Yes. According to emails reviewed by the Wall Street Journal, Arthur paid $10,000 for a sponsorship arrangement with Students Entrepreneurship Club at Harvard Business School in 2015, renewed it in 2016-17, Our use of the words Harvard Business School was reviewed and approved by Harvard. But, the business school said, they were never sanctioned in any way by the business school. Blah, 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 blah. So this is my favorite part. So here's an advisor quoted in this Wall Street Journal piece, which, by the way, if Jason Zweig calls you and says, hey, I've got this piece I want to quote you on, could you tell me about your (laughs) – could you tell me about this – Bullcrap list that you're on, and how you use that to market to clients. Best thing to say is no comment. Hang up the phone. (laughs) Yes. Do not say this. Uh, This advisor in uh, this place said in a YouTube video that he gave a speech in 2016 at Mr. Arthur's Harvard business, uh, Harvard branded event, and it attracted 300,000 in new money. Okay. Great. Which earned him thirty thousand dollars in immediate income. Hold the phone. Wait, 30 divided by 300 to carry the, huh? the divide. He earned
0: 10%. 10%. Wow. How, did, Quote, how do you get a 10% commission?
2: I don't know, but I'm going to call this dude and find out. Quote, I'm very careful to let clients know the facts of things, he said in an interview. But I told them I got to speak there, but Harvard did not invite or pay me. Oh my goodness! Everything, but it worked. Yeah, apparently to the tune of thirty grand. So the sliminess is multiplied by infinity.
0: This is not just in that arena. When you look at these financial bloggers, a lot of the time it says as seen on this site, this site, this site, this site, and you get one creative mention in one piece. Bam! It can go on your wall of fame that you were you were a big deal on uh, on one of these major sites and. Not always the case. Yeah. So I think you yeah. need to...
2: That, that, that's the same thing with all of these lists, right? I mean, maybe they get a little classier the higher up you go, right? The Barons 100. Is that worth a damn? Probably not. You, you know, it's just people who do a lot of sales. I don't know. I'd be very wary of an advisor that uh, flies the flag in your face of, I <laughs> Harvard, right <laughs>
0: Well, I I kind of agree with what mom says on this, which is you don't have to not trust. Go ahead and trust but verify. You know, yeah. tr- trust but I think but mom th- said that first. Trust but verify
2: was was Somebody mom's. Did. Mom said that.
0: Mom was the first one to say that. Trust Lend but verify. Let that out
2: to some politician sometime.
0: A couple, maybe.
2: <laughs> Years ago. Every time every time we watch reruns of that speech Right. I told him that. That's right. She, all, she always... President, here's a great line for your next speech.
0: She always says that, right? I think our lessons are that, number one, trust but verify. And then number two, when it comes to retirement plans, is your retirement plan a fiduciary also an investment house? Maybe some fiduciaries are more fiduciary than other fiduciaries. <laughs> We're so excited to have her finally on the Stacky Benjamin Show. If you're not sure who I'm talking about, you know her. On the front of her book, her name is Elizabeth Willard Thames. But you know what, OG? You know her as Mrs. Frugalwoods. She and her husband are ex-urban rookie homesteaders finding contentment on 66 acres in rural central Vermont, along with their now two children and their dog. Extreme frugality made this dream a reality, and now they chart a life of purpose beyond the nine to five, and uh, also try to figure out what to do with a massive crop of rhubarb from time to time.
2: Oh man, my grandma used to make rhubarb pie; it's so good. Mm-hmm.
0: I got to tell you, the first one bite, of the
2: things I miss about grandma.
0: The first bite, I'm not in love with because oh, of the because yeah. of the tanginess. The yeah. But yeah, but then it, there's something on that back end that hooks it's you back. You're the, like, the, I think I'll have another one.
2: It's the sugar. Yes. I'm the crust.
0: next thing you know you've down like six pieces so we're super excited to welcome her here to the basement let's say hello to our good friend mrs frugalwoods and coming down the stairs to the basement it's liz thames but you know her more as mrs frugalwoods how are you
3: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I'm glad you could include us on your book tour because I absolutely loved reading your story. And before I ask you a few questions about your life and have you tell us some of the stories from your life so far, right, from your life so far, tell me about where you are now. For people that don't know anything about the frugal woods, tell me about an average day in Liz's life.
3: Sure. So my husband and I live on a 66-acre homestead in rural central Vermont. And we have a two-year-old daughter and another baby on the way due very soon. And we became financially independent uh, last year after living in the city for over a decade and deciding that that was not the life for us. We did the polar opposite and moved to the middle of the woods. And so we absolutely love it out here. And we garden, we grow our own food, we preserve food, we harvest wood from our land and have a wood stove and we are figuring out how to be homesteaders, which is not something that we know how to do, but it gives us opportunities for daily learning. So we absolutely love being in nature every day.
0: And when you say you were, became financially independent a year ago, how old were you then?
3: 32. Okay. Yes, and, I am now 33. And, I know these things. I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and your husband, Nate? Uh, Nate is the same age as me.
0: Gotcha. And when you talk about financial independence, I think a key here is how much money you spend. About how much money do you and Nate spend in an average week or an average month?
3: Not much. So we publish our expense reports on the blog on Frugal Woods every month. And so that will give people a sense of how we structure our lifestyle and what we spend money on. In our first year of extreme frugality, when we were living in Boston, in Cambridge, specifically outside of Boston, we spent $13,000 for the entire year. That does not include our mortgage. And that does not include 401k contributions, but that was what we spent on everything else that we needed to live. So that kind of gives you a sense of how little we were spending in order to reach this goal. And I think, of course, it's important to note that there are several inputs to that equation. There's income, there's time, and there's expenses. So, you know, I never want anyone to think, oh, I can get there solely by saving at a very high rate. You know, that's one element of... This equation, but you also need to have an income that allows you to save and you need to factor in how much time it's going to take you to get to that number.
0: I want to read a quote from your book talking about spending money and learning about spending money more frugally. You said these revelations also led me to realize that paying money is the laziest least creative way to solve a problem or reach a desired end. There's no innovation in slapping down a credit card. At first, this was a challenge for me. I want to go back to the beginning, Liz. So you did very well in college and were not at all, it sounds like, a part of a really super frugal family.
3: Well, my parents actually are quite frugal. And they raised us with sort of this ethos of not wasting things. And so we grew up shopping at thrift stores and at garage sales because that just made sense to my parents. And that's what makes sense to me as well. That it's why would I pay full price for something when I can get it for 70 to 95% off on the used market? So that was kind of my entree into frugality. But I didn't have a real understanding of financial management. You know, frugality is it's one element of sort of the things that you need to do in order to live a financially healthy lifestyle. So I came into my young adulthood understanding frugality, but really not understanding anything else. All I knew was that debt is bad, which is a good starting point, but will only get you so far.
0: Did you have debt in college?
3: No, I didn't. So I was um, extremely fortunate. I went to a state school, the University of Kansas, which their tuition has actually increased since the time that I graduated. But when I attended, it was really affordable. And I had scholarships, I worked, and my parents were also able to help me pay for school, which is a tremendous privilege. And privilege is something that I talk a lot about in the book, because I think that my experience and my successes are really undergirded by the privileges that. Both my husband and I have had throughout our lives. We don't come from wealthy families, but we come from middle class, financially stable families. And we don't have trust funds, but we also never had an experience of not having enough to eat or having our electricity turned off. And we both come from very loving, supportive parents. And so it's, I'm very cognizant of how much privilege has enabled the path that I find myself on. And I'm uh, very thankful for that.
0: But there's still a lot of stuff about the, you know, the system, the way the average person on the average path in life works that didn't didn't work for you because your first paradigm was I'm going to do really, really well in school and that will lead to a super duper job. And that that wasn't the case for you.
3: That's right. So I was very fortunate to graduate from college. And again, you know, that's that privilege sort of comes up over and over again, just having a college degree having the ability to go to school and then to come out without debt is just tremendously privileged. Right, right. And so I I searched for jobs. I was like, okay, I'm ready to get my job and I sent out I think 50 resumes to different places and nowhere called me back. Nowhere emailed me back. I mean, they were not interested in me. And so I found a job through a temp agency in a warehouse that does document digitization. You may not be familiar with this field.
0: Oh, enlighten us then, please.
3: Let me tell you, <laughs> it's a f- fabulous field of taking paper files and putting them through a scanner.
0: Brilliant. And, and that's it. And I think, <laughs> did you have a 4.0?
3: I had a 4.0. Yeah. So I was feeling pretty bad about myself. I thought I've really gone wrong in life here, but I was determined to earn money. So I worked 40 hours a week in this warehouse sitting at a plastic folding table with these other people and we would just go through folders and smooth the edges on paper. Because in order, you may not know this, but in order for paper to effectively go through a scanner, it needs to be very smooth and flat and it can't have any staples or paper clips or post-it notes. Enter me, who would remove the paper clips and the staples and the post-it notes for eight hours a day. So that was my first job. What I thought at the time was, okay, I may as well at least earn money while, you know, this time is elapsing and while no one is hiring me. So I am glad from that, from that perspective that I I had the foresight to at least earn some money.
0: And you said the people you work with too were fantastic.
3: They were. I, the people I worked with were lovely. And I also got to listen to NPR all day long. So it was like the most current I've ever been on world affairs in my entire life. So there, you know, there really are upsides to everything.
0: But you, get this, but you got this big aha when you saw that your boyfriend, now your husband, his path was completely different and he had a much easier time getting a job. Tell me about that.
3: Right. So he interned uh, while we were in college. And I thought, gosh, you know, you're really not spending much time on homework. You're spending all of your time at your internship. And to me, that was, you know, that's not how you do things. You need to get good grades. But as it turned out, his internship translated into a full time job. Then I felt like I had really missed the boat because I had, you know, I'd done some internships, but I hadn't been the greatest intern ever because I was the greatest student ever. I thought that's what mattered. So he was able to get a quote unquote real job right after college. And I was, I was very jealous of this because I thought I had been on the right path and he had been on the wrong path.
0: It's interesting seeing the difference in what you thought was valuable and what valuable was. And yet it seems like it's the same with you now with extreme frugality, not to skip ahead because I want to get back to your story, but now you look at the things that you find valuable in your life versus what society tells you is valuable. And those still are two totally different things.
3: Right, and where I come down on extreme frugality and the way in which I define it is spending money only on what matters most to you. So allocating my most precious resources, which are time and money, only to things that matter. So before I entered this path of frugality, I was spending money and time on just any number of things that I thought might possibly be important and that society told me was important But once I isolated the variables of what actually makes me happy and what actually comprises the core of what I want to be doing with my life, I realized that there's very little I need to buy. There's very little money that I need to spend in order to get to that end of what I want to be doing with my time every single day.
0: I love how you walk us through this journey of getting to where you're at now. At some point, you decided to move east. Why did you decide to go to New
3: York well, that was mostly because Nate didn't propose. And <laughs> right. so I, I felt like, OK, well, if, if you're not going to propose, then I'm just going to leave and go to New York City. That seemed like the thing to do. And I also was eventually offered a job through AmeriCorps in New York City. And so I moved there having never actually been to the Northeast before ever in my life. (laughs) So moved to New York City, started this job. And then Nate eventually found a job in Boston and we settled in Cambridge and were married there. And we found that we really loved the Northeast. We loved the culture. We loved all of the great opportunities that are provided by these fabulous cities. So we lived in New York City, Cambridge, Washington, D.C., Cambridge again. And we were able to take advantage of the incredible museums and the art and the culture. But at the same time, we realized that city life was really not for us and was really not the lifestyle that we ultimately wanted for the long term.
0: But while you were there, you did have an experience with food stamps for a while. I mean, you went, not being just frugal, Liz, you went through a, a period where you were really struggling poor.
3: Yes. And you know, what I like to contextualize that with is that I always had the undergirding of my privilege. So I was never truly poor in the way that people who experience generational poverty are poor. I think there's a very distinct difference because I could have moved back to my parents' house. I could have moved in with any number of family members and had a support network. And a lot of people don't experience that. I had a bank account you know, many people who are truly struggling uh, don't even have access to credit or to a bank account. And so I think that while I did have an experience of being on food stamps and having very little money, it was still a very privileged mantle that I wore. And so it's I call it sort of trying on poverty for a year, but not really understanding what it means to live in entrenched generational poverty. So while I was in AmeriCorps, they gave me a stipend that was $10,000 for the year. And that was living in New York city. I was in Brooklyn and food stamps are one of the benefits that they offer as part of AmeriCorps. And so I did, I had food stamps and I sort of meted out my $10,000 over the course of the year. And I was able to save $2,000 of that 10,000 because I was so afraid of debt and I, I didn't have really any other money. So I felt that I needed to save as much as I possibly could. How
0: did you do that? I mean, can you give us a, t- a technique that you used? Because I can't imagine on a stipend of $10,000 in food stamps that you're able to save 2000 bucks.
3: Extreme frugality. So it's a really concerted effort to just not spend money. And it it sounds a little bit overly simplified, but there are a lot of instances in our lives where we don't actually need to buy things. You don't need to pay for haircuts. You don't need to pay for clothes. You don't need to pay for dinners out. Uh, You don't need to pay for furniture. I made my dresser out of cardboard boxes that I found, and I cut them up and then taped them together. And it, it worked fine. You know, I mean, it's not like a fantastic dresser. From a design perspective, but it did work. It did hold close. And so identifying what it is that you need to survive and where it is that you can cut back. And since my food was covered through the food stamps, that really makes it a lot easier. I think uh, groceries are one of the most significant expenses that I hear from people. And my transportation was also paid for through a transit card that was provided by AmeriCorps. So, you know, if your food and your transportation are covered, The other expenses that you're looking at are rent and utilities and then discretionary spending. And so rent is fixed. Can't really change that. Utilities are largely fixed, although there are things you can do to reduce your your energy consumption. And so then looking at all of my discretionary spending, I just eliminated everything that I could possibly do without.
0: The coffee shop discussion, it seems to me, was a really big turning point for you and Nate, where you really got on this, I don't know, the path really changed. What led up to that discussion? And then tell me about that discussion in the coffee shop that kind of was a pivotal point for the two of you.
3: So after my tenure with AmeriCorps, I was able to get a real job with a real salary. And Nate also had a real job with a real salary. And we moved in together and got married and lived in a basement apartment that was really affordable. It was sort of a below market rent basement and it was a one bedroom. It was pretty small. It was pretty dark, had some weird carpeting, but we were able to save a lot of money. So looking for those efficiencies early in our marriage, we were really on a path of savings from the beginning just because we didn't have any money and neither of us wanted to be in debt. And we created a goal of wanting to buy a house In Cambridge, which is one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world. So this is kind of like a ridiculous goal when you're 23 and have, I don't know, $2,000, but we wanted to do it. And so we just began saving and we never stopped. Then what happened is we bought our house in 2012. Our salaries increased. We were promoted at work. We changed jobs. We were promoted again. And so slowly we started to see that lifestyle inflation come in. And we started to see ourselves looking for ways to make ourselves happy by spending money. So we got on that hedonic treadmill of, well, if one dinner out a week is nice, wouldn't two dinners out be even better? And we increased our expectations for what we need in order to be happy. And so we commensurately increased our spending. And the coffee shop conversation you alluded to happened a couple years after buying our house. And well into a realization that neither of us were happy. So here we were living in a home that we owned, making more money than we ever had with great careers and great job titles. And we were not fundamentally happy. And so we realized we needed to change everything about our lives working jobs in the city, spending money was not bringing about the commensurate level of happiness that we expected. And so we thought, when are we happiest? And I think that's a great question to ask yourself. When am I happiest? And for us, the answer was when we're hiking, when we're in nature. And so we started to sort of work backwards. How do you get yourself into a situation where you are in nature more frequently? Well, you can drive there and you can hike, you could have a weekend house. You know, we went through all of these different machinations of what that life could look like. And what we finally landed on was we should just move to the woods. It doesn't make sense to try and retrofit a city lifestyle to nature when where we really want to be is the middle of the woods. And so we launched this plan to become financially independent and then essentially retire early to a homestead in the woods. In that way, I think the big takeaway for people is that it's not so much about your money as it is about articulating your goals. If you can decide where you want to be in life and exactly what you want to do, you can craft a financial plan that will then meet those expectations.
0: And I love the fact, Liz, that it was a journey. You didn't, I don't get the feeling like you, I mean, I get the feeling you're worried about getting it right all the way through, but I also feel this sense of, this sense of adventure and it's okay to hit, well, maybe it's just my takeaway from your book that, that it's okay to hit the wall. I want to read actually something on that point from your book. You you write, and this is around the coffee shop discussion and your decision to move out to the woods. I'd already suffered the paralyzing realization that I'd likely never feel adequately fulfilled or happy or whatever it is you feel when you're living the life you're meant to live. It just wasn't going to happen for me via my well paying, but ultimately energy sucking nine to five cubicle job. Didn't matter the job, didn't matter the city, didn't matter the house we owned, didn't matter the dog we'd adopted. We were both, without a doubt, unhappy. I was breathless about this novel life path, but I had a nagging feeling that, in a way, I'd failed. At 22, I was consumed with crafting a meticulous career, and I'd done it. Now at 30, I was preparing to abandon everything I'd worked for in favor of, let's be honest, a pretty bizarre idea. I didn't know anyone who'd opted out of conventional success. Was this even allowed? Despite my confidence in Nate and in the math, I was unsettled by my own compulsion to follow the rules. Do you still feel that way?
3: Thankfully, no. <laughs> so, but that was a really big learning experience for me. And there are a couple chapters in the book where I, I really dig into the ways in which I had to divest myself of these societal expectations. I think many of us are sort of slotted into these boxes of this is what you should do. These are the steps you follow and then you will be successful. Ergo, you will be happy. I'd done those things and I was sort of waiting for this happiness to appear, you know, just kind of sitting around wondering when it was going to show up and having that realization that everything I'd done was ultimately wrong. That's a difficult thing. But what came quickly on the heels of that was this idea of start now and don't look back. And what I mean by that is that if you identify that the path you're on is wrong, just stop. Don't be like me and keep doing it for a number of years stop, pivot and do something different because it's ultimately so much more fulfilling when you're doing what you're actually supposed to be doing. And I I finally figured out what it is that I'm supposed to be doing in life. I say supposed to in the sense of what I think I'm called to do and what I'm passionate about. So when Nate and I had the realization that we were on the wrong path, we didn't waste a whole lot of time. It was a pretty quick decision to change everything about our lives and start working towards this new goal. And I think having that flexibility in your own mind is really important. And just being able to recognize that what you're doing isn't working, but that you can have the power and the capacity to change it and to do something different. But it takes a very decisive, strategic action. The book
0: is called Meet the Frugal Woods, Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living. Liz, thanks a ton for hanging out with us. Books available tomorrow everywhere. How exciting is that?
3: Thank you so much.
1: Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And wasn't Mrs. Frugalwoods amazing? I'm ready to start saving money right now. How about you? In fact, I realize now that I'm selling my home, there's no need to buy another one. I'm just moving down here to Joe's mom's basement. Check it out bed by the water heater, all the free washing machine uses I need, tons of canned pickles and peaches. What's not to like? I'm gonna start planning out where I'll hang the bedsheets as walls, but first, how about some Oscar-inspired trivia? Octavia Spencer's nomination for The Shape of Water makes her the first performer to earn three Best Supporting Actress Oscar nominations in a single decade since who did so in the 2000s? I'll be back with the answer and hopefully some news for the movers in just a moment.
0: Big thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Stacking Benjamins. Have you ever tried to hire somebody? If you have, you know it's hard. If you haven't, let me tell you, it's awfully hard because you're sitting in an interview and some people are just great talkers, but what you really want are doers. And it's difficult to know from an interview alone if somebody is the right person or if their resume is correct. So you post to these job boards and you hope you're going to find the right person. But if you think about it, how often do you check job boards? For most people, it's a pretty occasional thing. But there is a place where people go daily to grow professionally and explore job opportunities. In fact, 70% of the U.S. workforce lives there. So that's obviously where you want to be, LinkedIn. You already know LinkedIn is the world's largest professional network. Well, it's also a better way to find great talent. Just ask any of the hundreds of thousands of businesses who posted LinkedIn jobs over the past year. 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week. And because LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, location, and more to match and promote your jobs to potential candidates, businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. So don't settle for posting and hoping the right person will find your role and apply or that you're just going to find the right talker, right? You want a doer. Go to linkedin.com SB and get a $50 credit toward your first job post. That's linkedin.com SB for your $50 credit today. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Stackers, I'm sure you know by now that both my spouse Cheryl and I use M1 Finance for our personal investments. That doesn't make it right for you. You should do your own homework. We'll call that our disclaimer here up top. But recently, we've had exciting news from the team at M1 Finance. They've announced they're now a completely free-to-use investing platform. You heard that right. No fees, no commissions outside of the investments themselves. I sat down with Brian Barnes, CEO and founder, and asked what made him decide to make M1 Finance free. We believe in the future all investing platforms will be free so it was a decision to get ahead of the curve it's obviously beneficial for the customer who will save money and be able to invest more for m1 we have other sources of revenue which were greater than the fee we charge so the more people using m1 the better for us as well so how about that no fees no commissions just you with more money to save and in control of your portfolio they'll even invest fractional shares for you You take the wheel or have them invest in a professionally managed approach like some of the robo companies out there. It takes only a minute to sign up. Start by heading over to stackybedjamins.com forward slash M1 Finance. M1 Finance. Be invested.
1: Hey there trivia fans, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor Doug And I can see it now Remember playing tent fort in the basement when you were a kid? What if that were real? You'd save money and have a spot for all the neighborhood friends to hang out All wrapped into one I'll count up the money I'm saving for you later But for now, let's get you that trivia answer, shall we? The question was this, Octavia Spencer's nomination for The Shape of Water makes her the first performer to earn three Best Supporting Actress Oscar nominations in a single decade since who did so in the 2000s? Nominated in 2007 for her role in Notes on a Scandal, and in 2008 for I'm Not There, she actually won for her first nomination where she played the role of Katharine Hepburn in the film The Aviator, which, by the way, was also the first time an Oscar-winning actress won the award for playing another Oscar winner. Of course, we're talking about Kate Blanchett. Did you get it right? If so, I'll invite you over for my Oscar party next time down here in what looks to be my new home. See ya!
0: Nice try, but Jennifer Lawrence, I don't remember her doing many uh, supporting roles. I suppose in the X-Men, she had supporting roles, but the X-Men aren't the kind of movies that get Oscar nominations, even though I liked a lot of those movies.
2: Yeah, I i, I don't know. I was just guessing. Yeah. You know, I don't pay attention to that stuff.
0: Cape Blanchett all over the place. Although, I'm with you, man. Terminator 3 got snubbed again this year. How many years in a row is that the Terminator 3 didn't get a-
2: Can't even, can't even count.
0: It's been like many? 25, hasn't it? <laughs> maybe, maybe more than that. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline OG and tackle some of life's or rather life insurance's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they're disrupting the life insurance industry by focusing on those two things you value most.
2: Since we're talking about movies, I'm going Reese's Pieces and Cherry Coke. Oh,
0: that's so good. Mm, it's your family and your time, but I'd say that's a very close three and four. They were the first life insurance startup that's also wholly owned by industry giant Mass Mutual to create a high-quality, affordable term life insurance policy you can purchase entirely online. And guess what? Qualified healthy applicants they can skip the medical exam. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote and learn about shur- insurance. I've I have now shortened the word insurance to insurance and learn about insurance the modern way. Right stackbenchments.com forward slash Haven Life. Let's say hello to our new friend, Nathan.
3: Hello, Joe and OG. Nathan here. My wife and I are thinking about getting a home and we could get enough for a 20, 10 to 20% down payment in about three to five years just with how much we can save. Or we could get a no-down payment loan. There's a special program in Utah that we qualify for that would allow us to get about a 5.5% 30-year mortgage on up to, I think, three to $400,000. Just wondering what your thoughts are and if we should wait to get the down payment or go for the no-down payment loan. Thanks so much for the show. I really do love it. I never learn anything, but I'm always entertained. Thank you, guys.
0: Hope
2: to hear from you soon.
0: Either Nathan's uh, squeaky, you hear? Did it sound like Nathan was a little squeaky?
2: <laughs> he sounded a little squeaky. Yeah.
0: He, he he may or may not have had somebody with him.
2: all yeah, right
0: uh, Making that call with him. But thanks for the call, Nathan. You know, this is an interesting thing. There are some different places around the country that have these uh, special programs for buying homes. Different areas of the country. Apparently, Utah is one of them. So, what do you think? Does he wait or does he do it now?
2: There's also FHA loans and that sort of thing where you can do. Pretty low down payment stuff, three, four percent. I don't like the idea zero percent down. Boy, that's slippery. If, uh, and I'm talking from maybe a little personal experience here, from back in the day. Back in the day, uh, boy, I'll tell you there is nothing emotionally more demoralizing than having negative two hundred thousand equity in your house. It totally changes everything in your life because you can't do anything. You're just stuck, right? You can't take that other job somewhere else because you got to come up with a quarter million in zero out, your note, right?
0: I remember feeling that way in 2007,
2: 2008. Yeah. Yeah. We bought our first house because housing prices were never going to not go up. Uh we bought our house first house in 2004. It was a new build and we got cash at closing. Bam. Figure that one out.
0: Yeah, it's magic. <laughs> You're like, this whole this whole process is magic. This,
2: this is so awesome. How many more of these can I do? <laughs> right? Like, every time I get a house, I get $10,000? Can I do this tomorrow? The guy's like, of course. Yes. You're good for it, right? That's right. I <laughs> mean, those were the no-doc
0: the wink, days. Back in the wink and a nod day, and you were good.
2: That's what the guy said. I mean, he literally said, so uh, you guys make, what, about $12,000 a month? And I'm like, no, not even close. He goes, let me rephrase. You guys make about 12000 a month, right? And I went, oh, yeah. And he goes, okay, great.
0: Isn't that sad? That's so that ridiculous. Uh, and we were
2: stressed out for it, years.
0: It just reminds me of the the big short.
2: What's the big short? My was. whole life was modeled <laughs> after was, that. What's the big short? But the bad side of it.
0: But let, let's let Nathan learn from your lesson. Don't yeah. do that. Don't do that.
2: Yeah, I just, I mean... I know you're looking at it from the perspective of, yeah, but I'm paying rent and I'm throwing all this money away and I I could be getting equity in my house. And that's all true if it works out the way that it's supposed to.
0: That's exactly my point.
2: If it doesn't work out, if housing prices soften a little bit or maybe they go down in your area or they flatline, then it's better off to have rented. And the other thing that you got to consider is, You know, you look at that, you got to look at taxes, you got to look at insurance, you got to look at maintenance and upkeep, which is at least 1% a year of the house value. So if you're going to buy a $400,000 house, plan on spending $4,000 a year just in maintenance and upkeep, just buying paint and oil for the lawnmower and all that other sort of stuff that you don't pay for right now if you're renting. So I would have a down payment. I don't have a vote for the 10 versus 20, you know, should you do the home equity loan, the 80, 10, 10, you know, you need to have some skin in the game. Also, five and a half percent interest in today's market is really crappy. You should be in like the low fours still, I think, maybe mid fours. In the effort to speed up this process, you're kind of screwing yourself in the long run, I think. So I'd go slow get your 10% down. Maybe even look at an FHA where you can do 4% or 5% down. It might be something to do as well.
0: I hate it when you like take all the words right out of my mouth. I find it so annoying.
2: I hate it when you take used gum out of my mouth.
0: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That is that has never happened. Not once. I <laughs> swear that that has never happened. Thanks for the question Nathan and uh, good luck with I think what might be a little one in your family. Or Squeaky toy or a squeaky toy well. <laughs> that's right there with you. We also get mail delivered here to mom's house. And Doug just brought down uh, today's letter, which comes to us from Rita. Rita says, Hi, Joe and OG. I love listening and learning nothing from your show three days a week. I have two questions. No problem if you can't answer both. You know what, Rita? We're up for it. It's your lucky day. We're going to do it. Number one, I don't, yeah we're going to answer them. We can't tell you how well we're answering them. <laughs> On a recent episode, OG suggested putting money in your 401k up to the match, then maxing your Roth IRA, then finishing up in your 401k. If you don't get a match and have both a Roth 401k and a traditional 401k, how would OG advise portioning out your contributions?
2: Oh, the answer is I have no freaking idea. It just depends on your uh, tax bracket, right? And this all has changed now with the new tax law this year. If you're kind of teetering on the edge of of a bracket, you probably want to Put some of that money into the pre tax side so you can stay on that lower side. There's no sense in having five or eight thousand dollars taxed at a higher rate when you can pull that down in the 401k if, if you do it the right way. Uh, if you're right smack dab in the middle of one and it doesn't matter, then um, and, and it's a relatively low one, then I would uh, then, I, then I like the Roth. I'm just in love with a Roth IRA and now Roth 401k's because no one ever pays taxes on that money again, ever. Nobody. Ever under the current. Now, I got to put that asterisk under the current tax law. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I got a sneaky feeling that eventually the government's going to figure this out. Look at all that money in that cookie jar. They're going to Look at all that money. Wait a second. Uh, that whole generation's got $10 trillion sitting in accounts that we'll never get tax on. Yep. Yeah. OK. That yeah. may end. but um, Oh, wait uh, a minute. <laughs> Nobody ever
0: changed rules with pensions, which they said were like a lockbox. Oh, wait a minute. They did.
2: And uh, Social Security. Oh, sorry. But uh, nevertheless. Uh, So it's going to kind of depend. Look at your tax brackets and see what... um, uh, If you're smack dab in the middle one, I like the Roth, but that's personal preference. Talk to a tax advisor before you blah, 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 blah. Okay.
0: Next question. Nice work. And number two, on a more recent episode, you had someone talking about a sort of reverse S&P fund that weighted the smaller companies more heavily than the top companies. That would be Phil back. Mm-hmm. who we really like even though he's from Ann Arbor, just this horrible town in uh, southeast Michigan. But Phil Back's cool dude and it's the re- reverse way S&P 500 where they take the smallest component of the S&P 500, they just flip it around so that now it's everything is is weighted so you don't have so much money in those big companies, a lot more money in the small ones in the S&P. So that's what Rita's is referring to. Anyway, back to her note. She said, we had on Phil Beck talking about a sort of reverse S&P 500 fund that weighted the smaller companies more heavily than the top companies. If companies fall out of the S&P when they stop doing well, aren't you putting more money into companies that are on their way down? Or maybe I just don't get the concept. Thanks so much for yet again, not teaching me anything, Rita. Thanks, Rita. How about that one, OG? Generally,
2: there's not a lot of movement between companies that fall in or fall out, Um Come in and fall out. I don't know. but uh, Jump in. Uh, ju- jump in and, and fall, fall plumb, back. Plumb it out.
0: Yeah, isn't it called fall, fall back and jump
2: forward? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's I'm, your I'm clock. Not, I'm not sure. But um, not a lot of movement there. A couple every six months, give or take. And uh, that's the benefit of the S&P is, or index fund, uh, that is, is that uh, uh, you don't have to try to pick that one, right? You don't know which company is going to do better or worse. You have some of all of them. And in this case, I think what Phil's point here was, was instead it of be so heavily weighted in Apple, Google, Netflix, and Facebook, which is, you know, those the, the biggest companies in uh, in the S P you're gonna be a little bit more weighted in Ones that maybe have a little more room to run. I don't know what is.
0: Well, well, what I like about Rita's thinking, and a lot of times new investors, and I don't know if Rita's a new investor or not, but people that aren't sure about something, she certainly is new to this position. Let's put it that way. When you're new to something and it's a new concept, you have some feelings about it, and I would start exploring those. And her feeling is, what if those little time, what if those smallest components, the S&P 500, what if they drop out? And the answer is. There is more movement at the bottom of the S and P than there is at the top. Definitely, sure. absolutely. Which means this is, and Phil actually said this at in his interview, that makes this when you take the S and P 500 and you turn it on its head, that does make this a much more volatile index than the S and P 500 is. It makes it; it's going to go up and down more. So it isn't like taking two apples and comparing them. You're actually making it more volatile by turning it upside down that way. So Rita's right on there. Companies will go out more often, but there will be other companies that jump in more often, right? So so you're not just catching falling knives, which stinks.
2: (laughs) Nice nice euphemism.
0: You're also grabbing onto these rockets that are skyrocketing into the S&P 500. You know, at one point, Apple was that company. So you could be grabbing it much, much earlier than you are here. However, with the reverse S&P, you're always going to have a little more movement that way than you do before. So uh, while Phil has shown that this historically over lots of different time frames has beaten the S&P 500, it clearly is a much more, not much more, but it's a more volatile offering than the S&P 500.
2: Which doesn't make it good or bad. It's it doesn't. Yes. different.
0: Exactly. Which which was Phil's point too. He's like, hey, this might be right for a more aggressive investor, not right for everybody. Just takes this idea and goes, What if we did this instead? Which is what I like about Phil, even though he's in Ann
2: Arbor. A squared. Uh
0: wherever. It just A squared. It's all it's all bad. Uh they, good restaurants down there though. They they do. And I uh oh, yeah, yeah. Some great food. Uh which I hate saying, but yes. Thanks a lot, Rita, for the note. If you've got a question for us, here's the ways you reach us in the basement. Here be the ways you reach us in the basement. Head to stackybeduments.com and across the top of the website, it says questions and just click on that link. It'll give you all the different ways that you can interface with us here on the Stacky Benjamin Show. Thanks also to everybody who's left a review of this year podcast. We love it when people tell people about our show, and we're so flattered. By the way, whenever we uh, obviously sit here creating new shows for a good part of the day, and whenever we get a new review, things just light up around here. It's always very gratifying to see somebody telling friends and neighbors about what we do in the basement. Coming up on Wednesday, the excitement here continues. Wasn't Liz awesome? Liz, Liz is, just has such a great story. It's such a great read. Og, good stuff. Next up on Wednesday. Janine Glista works for this little known show. I'm going to say little known on PBS called Biz Kids. Biz Kids, of course, is in its sixth season and profiles. If you don't know what Biz Kids is, they profile kids that have become millionaires, but through entrepreneurship. And this book they just released talks about all the different ways that kids can take $100 and turn into a million dollars.
2: Bitcoin!
0: <laughs> Bitcoin, for some reason, didn't make it. But yeah. we're going to have a little case study, though, with Janine, talking about some of their more famous biz kids. Whether you're an adult who's interested in a side hustle, entrepreneurship, or you've got children who might be looking for something to do in the upcoming months, maybe work on a business this summer. Uh, Our interview with one of the Biz Kids founders, Janine Galista, on Wednesday is going to be for you. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, tell us what we should have learned.
1: Sure thing, Joe. Why don't you get back to picking corn kernels out of OG's teeth, and I'll tell everybody what we should have learned today. By the way, who does that? Go to a dentist. Hey, first, take a lesson from Liz Thames, a.k.a. Mrs. Frugalwoods. Want to save money? Be intentional about your purchases and maybe you'll find that stuff isn't making you as happy as you'd hoped. Second, your company going straight to a mutual fund provider for their 401k support instead of through a third party? That might not be the fantastic move your company's hoping for. It might be time to point out potential conflicts of interest to your HR department before it's too late. But the big lesson? Don't ask Joe's mom to move into the basement after you sell your house. I've never seen her that angry, even though I said, please. I couldn't have been more polite. Well, there is good news. I'm not really close to selling my house anyways. I've had an offer for 187 bucks, even though I'm asking $1.2 million, It might be a while before we find that middle ground. Special thanks to Mrs. Frugalwood's Elizabeth Willard Thames for dropping by. You'll find her book, Meet the Frugalwoods, wherever books are sold. When you're done messing around with us, who do you want to teach you some money tricks? That nerd who talks over your head or your favorite basement-based geeks? Kathleen Selmans operates our Stacking Benjamins classroom. And to make up for the fact that we don't teach you anything here on the show, she's created a whole lot of tools you'll absolutely love. Head to learn.stackingbenjamins.com for details. And use coupon code Rocks. 10% 10% off yeah you're welcome this show was created by Joe Salcihai produced by Richie Rutter-Reese and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart Kathleen Selman's handles design newsletter and classroom opportunities if you'd like to learn more head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash classes online visit us on Twitter at, at SBenjaminsCast or on our Facebook page Shannon Cowan is our community manager and social media guru. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor Doug, and I do not like computer jokes, not one bit. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, Consult with a real financial advisor.
0: got a cautionary tale, OG.
2: Try to not make this so gross.
0: I don't think it's going to be gross. My my birthday was a couple weeks ago. Thanks to everyone Howdy. for all the nice uh, shout-outs on social media. That was very nice. I had a great birthday the first day. You don't uh, look
2: like a day over 51, dude.
0: Th- uh, thanks. And I'm only 50, but thank you.
2: I know. So, I you don't look a day over 51.
0: So my, my first day... I raised some money for charity, as I mentioned, and a few people have already heard this. Uh, raised money for charity by having a bunch of guys over, and we we had a big tournament. Ticket to Ride is the name of the game. We had a big Ticket to Ride tournament. Ordered great barbecue from in town, this place called Naaman's down the street, which is just award-winning, amazing Arkansas barbecue. Great stuff. And uh, so we chowed on that, but we had coleslaw, potato salad, barbecue, obviously beer. Beans beer wine didn't have any beans i actually oh, went without okay. the beans um i don't like their beans i like everything else about Naaman's. their beans are really really sweet like you're you know we were talking about rhubarb earlier this is it, I, I don't know it's not good
2: it's just a weird okay
0: yeah it's a vinegar it's vinegary and sweet at the same time imagine okay yeah not good so that's at six o'clock everybody comes over to start things and then uh we start the second round of games because it was a it was a double. Round And so the winners from each table went to the championship table. Everybody else went to the consolation tables. Of course, I took my seat at the consolation table (laughs) because I love playing games and I'm not great at them. And uh, so we play the second round of games. Then a few people stick around. There were maybe eight of us. We played a a couple great rounds of a game called Liar's Dice. And then after Liar's Dice, my friend Todd says hey, we got to play Slapshot, which is this fantastic, goofy hockey game at the end of the night. Well, anyway, at about 1230, everybody's leaving and I still have to edit the next day's show. And I have some wine in me, but I'm really not bad. I haven't drank a ton. So I edit the next day's show afterwards, which our amazing engineer, Steve Stewart's already put it together and he's edited 95% of it, but I always give it one last listen, cut out just a couple things and give it the thumbs up. So I know what the heck we're putting out there to the universe. So by then it's two 15, the house is a mess, but in the kitchen there is still some, some leftovers and dude, this coleslaw is amazing. And I turn on the Olympics was, you know, just firing up then, which at 2am is live. Right. Mm-hmm, right. And I just chow down on this flipping coleslaw. And the next day, Having just a couple people over, nothing big, you know, for my actual birthday, because we got to get ready for this half marathon we help out with. Every year now, the frustrating thing about living here, my birthday always always ends up being second fiddle, which is, you know, by most, account, it's okay with me. Like, I'm okay with that. That's, yeah,
2: imagine having a birthday four days before Christmas. Right. Kind of like every birthday's second fiddle. And then, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you versus Jesus. <laughs> exactly, like all right, <laughs> fine. You can have your day,
0: whatever. Again, <laughs> not as if you haven't had hundreds of them, but whatever. whatever. Yeah, early in the day, yeah, I, I don't feel so good the next day, and then about the middle of the day, I don't feel great, and then the few people drop by for for dinner, and uh, I now feel awful but this thing has been planned for a while and everybody's coming over and I should have told them not to come, but I didn't by the end of the night while everybody's getting ready to leave, I'm trying not to shake and I am freezing and everything in my body feels like it wants to like Brian Regan terms from just before the break, everything in my body feels like it wants to be outside of my body. right?
2: Everything.
0: (laughs) It does. And, Party's ending. So everybody leaves. And even though I didn't say I didn't feel good, it was just kind of clear that I was just kind of half into it. And the conversations got awkward a little earlier than they usually do. And everybody's like, well, okay, uh, we'll see you later. I'm like, yeah. And I felt a little bad because I'm like, I think people just felt a little awkward that Joe's kind of looking like he wished we'd go home, which is true. But I didn't (laughs) want to be non-welcoming, but I'd sit there and smile because I'm not even listening to the conversation. I'm just trying to hold my inside. (laughs) (laughs) Your
1: pants. <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> try to hold my insides in and uh and so everybody leaves and i immediately go to bed and all night long i am just shaking and i'm sweating and uh oh my goodness i wake up the next day and it's it is on my mom said uh, i think you got the flu And Cheryl goes, I'm not sure if this is a flu or not. Not sure what it is. But that went all day. And I had to skip. I was supposed to for the kids race, which is on Saturday. I was supposed to be the announcer. Skip that. And then on Sunday, uh, Cheryl was nice enough to go with me. I usually set up these goofy signs around the, the course. I drove... And she got out and set up the signs. So we loaded the car and I would stop and I'd point and she'd go put the sign in the ground. And we went around at 5 a.m. putting them out. And then I worked the starting line like I was doing. I usually work the finish line, but I told everyone, I'm like, I'm working the starting line. But now, everybody knows I'm sick. At the end of the starting line, this story was way too long. But the punchline of the story is I'm walking toward my car and I see my buddy Todd, who was the one that demanded that we play slap shot at the end of that first night. And I said, hey, man, he goes, I don't want to get too close to you because I heard you're really sick. I'm like, oh, I feel awful. And he very flippantly and jokingly goes, huh, you didn't stay up eating all that coleslaw after everybody left or something, did you? And then he gets in his car. He's like, "He's like, well, you know, it sucks turning 50, doesn't it? Uh, and he's, he's joking. But my brain's still back on that one comment. And I'm like, that coleslaw was set out at 6 p.m., And I was chowing down on it at 2.15, eight hours and 15 minutes later. and uh, Which is why I
2: don't eat coleslaw, period.
0: So the point of the story is, don't poison yourself, kids, because it doesn't go well for about 2.5 days. But it took me a few days after that to even feel 100%. So don't poison yourself. The lesson learned on today's After Show. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union can help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you could start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal's savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long-term Considering a big home improvement project, maybe you want to consolidate debt. Well, if you're thinking consolidation, that's part of your plan. You could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed rate home equity loan with zero closing cost or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. What I like, you make your plan first and then you use the appropriate instrument to get you there and Navy Federal has them. Both options could help make life's big expenses seem more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. Equal housing lender. Membership required. Terms and conditions apply. loans subject to approval.